Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project. As a lot of you probably know by now, my newest book, The Nation We Knew, has become pretty successful over the last few days with thousands of copies sold and quite a bit of attention in the news. I don't need to tell you that that's exciting, for me anyway. And because the book suddenly has visibility, a lot of people are sending me messages asking what the book's actually about, what its message is, and what I want it to accomplish beyond selling zillions of copies. I can't possibly respond to the hundreds of messages I've received individually. Sorry about that. Thank you. Although I'd really like to respond to all of them. So the best way I can think of to get back to everybody is by telling you the story right here on my podcast. So here goes. There's a well-known Winston Churchill quote that goes like this. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Now, I want to keep that in mind as we go forward here. I was born in the American Southwest, Amarillo, Texas, if you care, and I lived all over that part of the country until I was 13, although we did spend some time in Southern California and Calgary, Alberta as well. My dad was a petroleum geologist. His job, and by extension my mom's, was to follow the oil. So we moved around constantly. We lived all over the Permian Basin, as well as in Oklahoma and New Mexico, We actually lived in the same house in Midland, Texas, three different times because we kept getting transferred back there. Those moves were made easier by the fact that the nail holes in the walls for pictures were exactly where my parents had left them the last time they lived in that house. Now, in 1968, when I was 13, we were transferred to Madrid, Spain. For me, that was the 11th move in 13 years. But this time, we weren't moving to another dry, nameless little town in West Texas. Places like Midland, where the two competing high schools were Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, and all that that implies, or the next town over, Odessa, where the TV show Friday Night Lights took place. Nope, we were moving to Spain, a country I knew nothing about, but whose leader was Generalissimo Francisco Franco, and whose government was a dictatorship. A benevolent dictatorship, to be sure, as long as you didn't get crosswise with any government official, but make no mistake, it was a dictatorship. We learned pretty quickly what not to talk about and to look around to see who was nearby before discussing anything that might touch on politics or government. When my parents held parties, as they did at New Year's, for example, where more than 10 guests were going to attend, they were required to notify the Civil Guard, Spain's answer to a domestic militia. And the evening of the party, two of them would show up in uniform, carrying their machine guns, and just sort of hang out. I don't recall that it put a damper on the party, but they were there. My point is that moving from Midland, Texas, to Franco's Spain in the 1960s was different than moving from Midland to, say, Houston. Just saying. I learned... I became multicultural, and I developed a moral and professional compass that ultimately led me to be what I am today, a writer and a speaker and a teacher. But the international bug had bitten me, and while my career started in the United States, I longed to get back overseas. It wasn't a dream, it was part of who I was. So when the time came, in 2000, I left my corporate job 
I went independent as a consulting analyst, which is a fancy way of saying that I was a writer, speaker, and teacher, and I began to travel. I wrote books, I gave keynotes, I went to so many places that are hard to find on maps of the developing world that my kids were convinced that I was a CIA asset. Now, it didn't hurt that my mobile number ends in 007. Every place I visited made me a better person. The people I met there made me appreciate what I have. They taught me about integrity and honor and the kindness of strangers. They taught me that some of the richest people I know have nothing and that some of the poorest people I know have everything. They taught me respect and gratitude and patience and they taught me what life is supposed to be about. The other thing I learned and this is perhaps the origin of the idea that became the nation we knew, was the unbelievable sense of admiration and awe that people in so many countries have for the United States, for the symbol that America is in their lives. I remember a friend telling me that he was stopped by an old man in Australia one day, an elderly, obviously poor, first Australian man, who asked him if he knew who the most powerful woman in the world was. My friend began to mentally compile a list of names, but before he could offer an answer, the old man smiled at him and said, the Statue of Liberty man, God bless you. You wanna be humbled? Have that conversation. Walk into a small village in the developing world and have people want to touch you, to hold your hand, just because you're from America. You wanna be put in your place? Go through that a few times. In fact, I strongly recommend it. In 2013, eight years ago, while I was flying all over the world, I worked in 29 countries that year, things back in the States were becoming increasingly tense and unpleasant as ideological partisanship began to rear its head like it never had before. A lot happened that year. John Bonner was re-elected as Speaker of the House. Obama was sworn in for his second term. Edward Snowden's intelligence leaks became public. Trayvon Martin's killer was found not guilty, and the federal government shut down for 16 days because of intransigence on both sides of the political aisle. Suddenly, instead of looking like the shining city on the hill that people outside the country wanted to see, needed to see, were hungry to see, we began to look like a bunch of self-important teenage bullies whose motto went from e pluribus unum, from the many one, to I'm more important than we. And we began to assign labels. But what's worse, we began to assign value to the labels. Not to the person to whom the labels were attached, but to the labels themselves. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, you're a liberal? You're a whining snowflake who wants a world full of unicorns and rainbows. Oh, you're conservative. You're an old school, out of touch, uneducated, ignorant bigot. Democrat? raise taxes at all costs. Republican, destroy the middle class by eliminating taxes on the rich. Hispanic, you're a lazy waste of resources except when you develop high energy to be a criminal. Black, you're an entitled white-hating militant. These were the labels that American society began to assign to people. Why? Because we got lazy. It was so much easier to read the label and instantaneously and wrongly categorize than it was to actually take the time to get to know the person to have a civil conversation in search of common beliefs and values instead of working so hard to drive distance between each other because of convenient differences. And then 
came social media. Over the last few years, we've faced some serious challenges, not just in the United States, but across the world. A global pandemic, the rise of global nationalism, economic uncertainty, fear of unbridled technology, climate change, and the realization that we haven't exactly been the best neighbors on this planet and that the landlord starting to notice. But rather than coming together as members of a thoughtful, intelligent, civil society intent to face off against these challenges and actively do something about them, we chose instead to point fingers at each other and use blame as a way to justify doing nothing. This works when you're three years old. It doesn't work when you're a responsible adult, or at least when you're supposed to be. Meanwhile, social media sucked us in, and while it gave us access to family photos and people we hadn't seen in years and helped us create communities of interest so that we could find people who shared our interests, it also isolated us in those communities, creating an artificial tribal effect that turned us against one another by absolutely wrongly pointing out that we are far more different than we are alike, and that different is something to fear rather than a quality that we should find intriguing and attractive. As a result, some of us have begun to realize that social media is actually anti-social media. It provides an effective platform for the expansion of confirmation bias and serves as an influence conduit for bad actors to have their way with us, including Russia, China, QAnon, Antifa, and others. It serves as a megaphone and an echo chamber, amplifying outlandish and apocryphal and often dangerous ideas and points of view that are nowhere near as widespread as their relative loudness would indicate. But because they appear bigger than they actually are, they create fear, further dividing us as a cohesive society. Hey, it was on social media, so it must be true. Let me be clear. I'm not stupid and I'm not naive. And rest assured, all these voices existed long before the arrival of social media. Whether we're talking about anti-government conspiracy theorists, or flat earthers, or white supremacists, or anti-vaxxers, or the Christian right, or the ultra-socialist left, all had their followers, and they all had a voice. But in keeping with the bell curve that defines any statistically large group, including countries, these voices are fringe elements that have always existed at the periphery of a civilized society, a place where they're free to rant as loudly as they like without causing harm to the vast numbers of people under the bulk of the bell curve who don't adhere to their beliefs. Today though, those fringe voices enjoy an advantage that only comes through the influence of social media's unlimited geography. They can be a safe distance away from the controversial, fear-mongering conversation that they spawn, which is the ultimate hallmark of cowardice. As I point out in the book, it's akin to tossing a firecracker into a crowd from the top of a building, while at the same time enjoying the artificial echoing loudness that social media and the internet make possible, turning low-volume noise into hurtful rhetoric that creates fear and erodes trust. They're kind of like the mighty Oz, a loud, commanding voice on the surface, but when you pull back the curtain, we find a timid little bully with a megaphone and no real message to share things are not always as they seem. I wrote my book, The Nation We Knew, because of the fatigue that has settled on the country today. Not COVID-related fatigue, although that's clearly part of it, 
but the fatigue that's associated with this loud drone of meaningless noise that emanates from many of our elected officials, noise that divides rather than unites, at a time when we need the power of national unity more than we have at any time in the recent past. In the United States, anyone who has made it through second grade knows two phrases pretty well, we the people and e pluribus unum, from the many, one. When did the one become many? So polarized that coming together is like trying to get the south poles of two strong magnets to touch. So as I wrap up this explanation, let me take you back to my observation about people in the world. People whom I've had the honor to know and who struggle every single day to survive. Do you know what they worry about? They worry about whether they can feed their kids tonight. They worry about whether some government goon is going to bash the door down and take them away because they made some off-handed comment in the market. They wonder if they'll be able to get the medication they need, but that has been almost impossible to find because it gets stolen by the government to resell for profit at the expense of the people they supposedly govern and care for. They worry about whether their meager savings will still be in the bank tomorrow. A lot of them worry about whether they will be it tomorrow. But way off in the distance, when they squint their eyes and crank up their imagination just a little bit, they see this glow on the horizon. It comes from a distant city, a city on a hill, a city that represents hope and promise and a warm welcome for worthy individuals who want a better life. It represents a vision of what could be, not what is. It shows them there's always something better something that's worth striving for. And that's why I wrote this book, because you know what? We're better than this. I want people to read the story and then sit down and think about how we create some of the change that I wrote about in this book. I want to start a national conversation. And let me be very clear. This book is nonpartisan. It takes no sides other than the side of people who want a better life and a government willing to help them get it. Let me also say that I knew I had something good when I realized that every single time I have a conversation with someone that edges toward politics and the issues that we face, it hits me right in the face that, wow, that's in the book. It's in the book. So I hope this helped, and I hope you enjoy the book. The book is a novel, and it tells the story of a president in the future who managed to fix, with her colleagues, a lot of the challenges that we face today. It's on Amazon in both physical and digital formats. Thanks for reading.